And I got them kind of one at a time over a couple of years after I had learned to read. One was about George Washington. One was about Thomas Jefferson. One was about Benjamin Franklin. One was about Theodore Roosevelt. One was about Franklin Roosevelt. And then I got one about Martin Luther King Jr., And I was really impressed. I remember being blown away as a little boy that, wow, people really treated him unfairly. That was, not, that was not cool. And I remember being so impressed at the nonviolence, even at a young age, as my parents explained to me what that meant. And I started to get it in the way a 10-year-old boy gets it, Right? And as I got older, that really stuck with me. That's pretty intense. Because practicing nonviolence takes a lot of guts. It is not passive resistance. It is active resistance. Knowing full well ahead of time you could get hurt or you could get killed. But you will not use that hate or violence in return. That's heavy stuff. And as I got older, I got really into Dr. King. I read Bearing the Cross. I read Parting the Waters and all Taylor Branch's stuff. I read cover to cover A Testament of Hope, the collected writings, every single writing publicly made by Dr. King. It was scripture. He really became a hero. And yet, 
as I got older, I started to notice something about remembering Dr. King. I had become an amateur Dr. King and civil rights movement scholar because of the way that biography for children grabbed me when I was a boy. And as Dr. King's birthday and his remembrance of his life became a national holiday, and some people wanted to observe it and some people didn't, and then the observance became more widespread, I started to notice that it became about tolerance and equality, which are wonderful things. But as I said before, tolerance is kind of a minimum requirement. It's allowing something you don't like. And it's better than not allowing it. You know, it's the concept of negative peace and positive peace that Dr. King talked about, where negative peace is the absence of open hostility and violence and aggression. But it doesn't mean there's real positive peace present. It doesn't mean there's really in place an actual feeling of brotherhood and sisterhood and solidarity and togetherness. And I realized that our observations and remembrances of Dr. King were starting to get, well, a little sanitized. One of Dr. King's uh, colleagues during the Civil Rights Movement said, as time went on, you know, Dr. King, Martin was a radical of the century. And yet, some people want to remember him as Uncle Tom of the century. And he certainly was not. He was as provoking and as controversial a figure in his own way, in his own time, as you would find in public life. Because some of the things he helped us come to understand were not commonplace, and everyone did not see and agree how it all worked and fit together, what it really meant to treat everybody with equal dignity and respect. Some of the things we do not hear about Dr. King on a regular basis on his holiday is we don't hear how Dr. King spoke often about the problem of poverty. Today we would call it income inequality. This became a huge theme for Dr. King. When he was assassinated, he was in the middle of organizing what was called the Poor People's Campaign, a march on Washington, not just of African-American people demanding civil rights, but of the country's poor, demanding that in a country which had claimed to be the richest country in the history of the world, there were far too many people with little or nothing. We don't hear a lot on our holiday how incredibly anti-war Dr. King was. If you read Dr. King's sermons and speeches, as he came out strongly against the war in Vietnam, and you replace the words Vietnam with the words Iraq or Afghanistan, they would read just as well and pertinent today as they did in the 1960s about Vietnam. For example, he said, I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw people and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. 
So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. He said, I tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they asked, and rightly so, well, what about Vietnam? They asked if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the change it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghetto without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor in violence in the world today, my own government. King realized in his time what we call intersectionality today, that the problems of race and poverty and war and all people who are oppressed for any reason are all interrelated. And as he spoke about these things, he was criticized strongly and publicly for being an extremist, for agitating, for causing trouble, for wanting too much too fast. And part of his response was to ask us, Yes, I am an extremist, but the question is, what kind of extremists are we going to be? Are we going to be extremists for hate, or are we going to be extremists for love? And sometimes being an extremist for love forces us to cause tension and bring out of the shadows the real surfaces and prejudices and hatreds that are there so that we can bring them into the light of day so we can handle them and do something about them and show their ugliness to the world so we can work together in making them go away. People said, but the protests caused so much unrest and disturbance. And he would say, if we are focusing on the unrest and disturbance caused by the protest without first wanting to understand what makes people want to protest in that way to call attention to what is wrong that they are dealing with, then we are missing where we should place our attention. He said blaming the protesters is kind of like blaming the person who has money for being robbed or blaming the crucified for the crucifixion. He told us we must move from a thing-centered society to a person-centered society. He said, I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers and profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. I think Dr. King would have occupied Wall Street. In 1966, Dr. King was invited to give the Ware Lecture at the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly. At that speech to the gathered delegates from all the congregations of our churches across the country, he told the story of Rip Van Winkle. He said the remarkable thing about the story is not that Rip Van Winkle falls asleep and he wakes up many years later. The remarkable thing is what happened while he was asleep. When Rip Van Winkle falls asleep in the story, King George is the monarch and the supreme leader of those living in the colonies in America. But when Van Winkle wakes up, 
there's a picture of George Washington on the wall, the first president. King said, the moral of that story is do not sleep through the revolution. And he urged us as Unitarian Universalists, a tradition that he had a lot of respect for and drew from. He told us, do not sleep through the revolution. If we fall asleep, our voice may be silent. And as he reminded us, it is not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends that we will most remember. And so today, as we see protesters for Black Lives Matter in cities around our country, protesting nonviolently, taken away and hauled off and treated with violence and aggression by a militarized police force. And yet we have basically white terrorists and people committing treason in federal land in Oregon, and the response that meets them is patience. We wonder why, what's gone on? Have we slept through the revolution again? We need to continue as Unitarian Universalists have been so often on the right side of history. And the Dr. King, our holiday leaves out, calls us to have the courage to be part of that revolution of love, to be extremists for community and kindness and caring and nonviolence. We must pledge to remain awake, wide awake. For Dr. King told us there will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the colored citizen is granted full citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of the nation until the bright day of justice truly emerges. May we heed his words, stay awake, and continue to stand on the side of love.